you take your seats, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Galatians chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers are going to walk to the back. Just slip your hand, uh, grab their attention, and we would love to be able to put a copy of God's Word into your hand today. And if you don't own a Bible, if you're here and you don't own a Bible, take one of these and receive it, please, as a gift from us. We would love to be able to put a copy of God's Word into your hands. Well, I love summer. I love the blue skies, the green grass, the blazing heat of the sun. I love to sit outside, eat outside. I love to swim in your pool. I love to go... (laughs) I love to go to the beach. I just love the summertime. And for me, there there really is uh, no discussion of second place season. Put it this way, I lived in California for four years, in Southern California, and people, when they found out where I was from, they would ask, do you miss the seasons? And I'd be like, no, (laughs) I do not. I will take blue skies, you know, 80 degrees, 75 degrees, whatever it is, perpetually year-round, that would be just fine with me. There's so many great things about the summertime. Another great thing about the summertime is undoubtedly the fruit, right? There's nothing like summer fruit. My favorite are the strawberries and the peaches. And I have a a love-hate going on with the peaches, right? You love when the peaches finally arrive, but you hate what it means, right? Summer's over. Well, the Word of God has a lot to say about fruit. The psalmist says that the one who delights in the Word of God and meditates on it will yield fruit. Book of Proverbs says that godly wisdom brings forth fruit that is better than gold. The prophets talk about the speech and the deeds of the people in terms of the fruit that is born from them. Israel herself in the Old Testament is figured as a vine planted by God intended to bring forth what? Fruit. In the dawn of the New Testament, John the Baptist proclaimed that repentance, turning away from sin to God, would be demonstrated by bearing fruit. Jesus said that his true followers would be known by their fruit because you can distinguish between kinds of trees and the health of those trees simply by looking at the fruit that they produce. In John chapter 15 and verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In the New Testament letters, the gospel spreading and increasing and drawing people in and giving new life to previously dead souls, this is labeled as fruit. The people themselves are called fruit. And the good that they do for the Lord is also called fruit, as is the righteousness that the Lord is working in them. And so whether or not you share my same passion for summertime, you need to be greatly concerned with fruit. This is the focus of our summer series this year. Maybe as you consider the question, what kind of summer are you hoping to have? What kind of summer do you want to have this year? A good answer would be a fruitful summer. 
God wants to produce this in us, and at the same time, this must be cultivated by us. And in this letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul is addressing a very serious problem that has come into the churches of the region of Galatia. In fact, uh, to say that it's a very serious problem is actually an understatement. It's really a catastrophic problem, an eternal life and death problem in that false teachers have come in and they're undermining the true gospel. This is troubling the churches there. And Paul in chapter 1 and verse 6, he writes to them and he says that he's astonished that after hearing and believing the true gospel, that by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, sins are forgiven and eternal life is guaranteed and that no work could ever be done on their part to earn this free gift. Paul's astonished now that after he's left their presence, the Galatians are willing to be infiltrated and influenced by those who want to say that there's more to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want to say that the people in the churches must keep the law in order to be saved from the penalty of sin. And Paul finds this out and he writes in this letter and he's like, what? This is the very heart of the good news. There's nothing that can be done. We can't merit a right standing with God by keeping the law. If, if we could do that, listen, if we could do something in order to earn a righteous standing before God, then Jesus didn't need to come for us. That's what chapter 2 and verse 21 says. Look, go back to chapter 2 for just a moment. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. He wouldn't dare undermine the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's a very, very important verse. Because it conveys this truth that if there's anything that we could do to stand before God on the last day and gain an entrance into his eternal kingdom because of something that we can point to that we've done, then Jesus didn't have to come. He didn't need to come. The Son of God did not need to take on human flesh and live a perfect life and be crucified and, and bear the Father's wrath for all of humanity's sin. He didn't need to do that if there was something that we could do. Jesus did need to come. He needed alone. He, he's the only one who could live a perfect life. And trusting in his finished work, this is what sets us free from the impossible burden of having to keep the law's demands. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery or look at verse 13 in, in chapter 5 for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another and this here this is the context for the fruit of the spirit you know some people hear freedom, for sure, when these false teachers hear freedom. And enough of the Galatians 
when they heard freedom uh, warranted this letter to be written. Maybe even some of you here today, when you hear freedom, there's an overreaction and, and you think that this is an open door to fulfill any and all of your natural desires. As one writer put it, some think that liberty is a license for licentiousness. And so as a corrective to this wrong thinking, Paul says, no, that the true gospel does not grant an excuse for selfish living. Look at, again, verse 13, he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He goes on to say, as we read, but through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. See, we read this and we see that real freedom, true freedom in Christ, liberates us from our selfish inclinations and sets us on course to live a life of devotion to God by His Spirit. Life in Christ is not about conforming to a legalistic code, it's about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. And I appreciate how the ESV Study Bible describes what it means to walk by the Spirit, so I wanted to share it with you. It says, walking by the Spirit is making decisions and choices according to the Holy Spirit's guidance and acting with the spiritual power that the Spirit supplies. Far from a let go and let God approach to life, following the leading of the Spirit requires an active, step-by-step pursuit on our part. And when this is happening in our lives, it is then that we will bear much fruit. Now, I realize this is a bit of an extended introduction, and we need to do that in order to set up 
the summer series, and I want to continue on just with a few more clarifications before we get into the first characteristics of the fruit. But uh, maybe I would say this, this might be helpful uh, to reiterate. We're going to need to remember this as we go through uh, this summer series. The fruit of the Spirit is produced only through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can uh, read this list, we can memorize these uh, nine characteristics of the fruit, and we could so easily slip into this kind of law-keeping mentality where we think it's up to us, right, to produce these fruit. So we need to remember that these are a work of God and that their source is God alone, and at the same time, we have a crucial part to play. Also, we need to remember that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is not an exhaustive list. Other character qualities that come from walking in the Spirit are included in other passages of Scripture. This is not the only nine parts of the fruit. These will be included, some of these nine, in other verses with other characteristics that aren't included here. So we need to remember this, and really this is helpful to remember because um, we could sometimes think that if we just get these in order, then maybe we're living the fruitful Christian life to the neglect of some of the other fruit. Also, what needs to be emphasized is that the fruit of the Spirit is one fruit not multiple fruit. So as you hear fruit of the Spirit and even as you read about these characteristics in the fruit of the Spirit and we go by, or sorry, we go through them one by one, think of this not as, um, not as a basket of different fruit. Think of it not as a fruit salad, you know, with different pieces of fruit. Think of it rather as one fruit that, you know, you cut a slice out of and you can describe that delicious Juicy, cold, sweet, right? You can describe the fruit in a multitude of ways. And again, this is important to make sure that we understand because sometimes we can tend to emphasize in our own lives those traits that are more maybe natural to our own particular temperaments, right? Like we, we may just kind of naturally or um, more easily be inclined to certain um, parts of the fruit than others. And we can maybe even excuse ourselves from, from um, cultivating those other characteristics, but we can't do that. We need to be well-rounded spirit followers. Also, we need to remember that the fruit of the spirit doesn't just happen. There's a battle going on. Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to one another. Right? So if you're in Christ, you're a new creation and your old nature is dead, your old self has been crucified with Christ, but at the same time, your, your flesh, those, those ordinary desires of fallen human nature keep rearing its ugly head out of the grave. One commentator said it helpfully like this, a battle with the flesh remains. 
Life is a war zone. The flesh and the spirit vie against one another constantly so that temptations continue to harass believers. This is our life. And some might say, especially in the summertime, you might be tempted to slow down, right? There's a danger in, in the summertime to take your foot off the gas when it comes to your zeal for the Lord. And this is part of the reason why we want to spend the summer talking about the fruit of the Spirit and taking an in-depth look at this passage. What we want to do is we want to consider together what does it look like to walk by the Spirit and to cultivate the characteristics that God wants to produce within us. We titled the summer series Gospel Impact, Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, because believing the true gospel, listen, believing the true gospel, this is what Paul's arguing here, ought to have a massive impact on how we live our lives. And in turn, our lives, when walking in the Spirit, ought to have a gospel impact on others. I appreciate how Pastor Ian put it last week. He said, God is working in us in order to work through us. This is what we're going to see over the next couple of months together. So uh, let's dig in now uh, to the first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit and ask the question, how do I cultivate that which God wants to produce in me? How do I cultivate that which God wants to produce in me? And today we're going to be looking at how do I cultivate love? We're going to ask the question, what does the Bible teach us about what it looks like for God to produce love in us and for us to cultivate this part of the fruit? In order to answer this question, we're going to break things down the way that the Bible breaks things down when it comes to love. And so the first answer is this. Number one, prioritize a primary love for God. Prioritize a primary love for God. And again, right, um, right away here in this first point, I want to again emphasize that when I um, give this point in the form of a command, an, an imperative, I do so with the understanding that we're approaching this in total dependence of the power of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think a good way to um, describe what it looks like to walk by the Spirit would be to say that we ought to live in a constant frame of mind or a constant attitude of help me. Right? This, this ought to be our heart as we live this life 
is that we look to God and, and, and we look to Jesus and we look to his spirit within us and we say, help me, I need you. I can't do anything good apart from you today. I can't do anything apart from you this hour, this minute. I need you. We make this our unceasing prayer. We make this the, the um, part of what we pray when we close our eyes in solitude. We, we make this part of our prayer when we open the word of God to see his directions for our lives. When we do that, we see first, first and foremost, the order here of what comes first, I, I think is very important. The Spirit of God in us wants to produce a love for the triune God, and so we must nurture this and pursue it and give it all of our attention with all of our zeal. I think most of you would agree that there's a danger with familiar text, right? Even text like the fruit of the Spirit. Some of us probably have it hanging on our wall, maybe in the kitchen. Many of us maybe have this list memorized. We could just kind of rhyme it off. And that's good. And I think there's a reason why um, a couple of verses like this would be commonly in our homes and commonly stored up in our hearts, commonly spoken about, but there's a danger, right, at the same time that these become too familiar. Another familiar verse that um, we might be able to rhyme off or or passage would be uh, in Matthew chapter 22 when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Now look around this room and I'm sure many of us could answer that question, right, without even needing to turn there. But it's good for us at times to slow down and to really meditate and and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word in those particularly familiar sections of scripture. In Matthew 22, Jesus answers their question and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So let me ask you this today. To what degree does this accurately represent where your heart and mind and soul is really at. Is this first, is this foremost primary commandment often the focus of your meditation? Is this the way that you go about your life seeking to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind? Maybe as I ask that question, it's good to ask another question. What is love anyways? When the Bible talks about love, what is it talking about? And often uh, in the world and and even in the church, we see um, two kind of errors when it comes to thinking about love. We we, we see um, on, on the one hand, love is all feeling. And on the other hand, love is all action. 
And this is a false dichotomy. These are both errors. See, if if love is all feeling and no action, then we're um, definitely not taking heed to what the scriptures have to say about love. But the same is true if if we want to combat that, because, you know, we want to say, look, love is action. Love is doing. Love is a verb. Which is true. But we don't have to say that love is not affection and emotion and feeling because the Bible talks about love in these ways as well. So love is both. It is sincere, affectionate emotion, and it is action. It is doing. It is a verb. How do we prioritize a primary love for God? How do we do that? Well, I've got two ways, and the first is this. Seek to know him more, to love him most. Want to grow in our love for the Lord? Seek to know him more in order to love him most. Peer into the depths of who he is. Seek to learn more about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Seek to grow in your your knowledge and your understanding of what he's like, how he describes himself in the Word, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he promises to do. Immerse yourselves in these things. You know, I was thinking this week about Philippians chapter 3, another of Paul's letter where he writes to, to know him, to know him. The apostle Paul knew, knew God. He knew the Lord. The Lord appeared to him, right? He spent time with the Lord. And yet he still says, oh, to know him. That is my aim in life, to know him. And the more we know him, the more we will love him because he is supremely glorious and beautiful and lovely. So that's the first way to prioritize a primary love for God. Second, seek to prove your love by keeping his word. Seek to prove your love by keeping his word. Scriptures say that obedience is the great test and evidence of our true love for God. Obedience is the great test and evidence of true love for God. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, if you want to say that you love me, if if you want to actually love me, you will keep my commandments. He also said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Again, in the same chapter, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Do you think he's trying to get a point across? Our obedience to God demonstrates whether or not we truly love him. Certainly demonstrates um, the degree to which we are practicing our love for him. So this is the first way we cultivate love. We prioritize a primary love for God. 
Second, in order to cultivate love, we must provide a profound love to others. Provide a profound love to others. And this is the immediate context of our passage on the fruit of the Spirit. Look again at Galatians chapter 5 in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here he quotes Jesus who continues on in Matthew 22 in answering that question that was asked to him, what is the greatest command? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Can we put this up on the screen? I want you guys to see this. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You love God and you love others, you are fulfilling the intention of the law. And Jesus here, he links together in an inseparable way, love for the Father, love for him, love for his spirit, and love for others. They cannot be separated. Apostle John, we, we keep kind of looking at, at John. He's, he's often referred to as the apostle of love, right? He stressed this in his first epistle. He, he wrote in 1 John, he said, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Right? He goes back. He says, remember when we were with Jesus? Remember when we came to you and we passed on what his primary message to us was whoever loves God must also love his brother we know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers then he says this whoever does not love abides in death how about this by this it is evident who are the children of God. Sounds like Jesus himself, right? This, this is what makes it evident whose child you are and, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I really appreciated what one author said in just summing this up very succinctly. He said, love is the first and best evidence we are Christian. Colossians 3, another passage where the Apostle Paul is describing a spirit-filled, fruitful life, said this, he said, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. When Paul wrote to Timothy, Right? When he's passing on to Timothy, reminding Timothy, listen, this is what my ministry was like. This is what your ministry should be like. He says, the aim of our charge is what? Love. 
Chapter 1 and verse 5. He's writing to Timothy. Here's how to set things in order. Here's how to lead the church of Jesus Christ. The aim of our charge is love. Apostle Peter, in his letters, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. See the priority? Above all, keep on loving each other earnestly with great effort. This has to be our spirit-dependent focus to cultivate love for others. Affection for others and action toward others. Giving ourselves for the sake of others. If you're looking to have just a really concise definition of love, I think that's a good one. Giving ourselves for the sake of others. And we do well to ask, okay, who, who, what, which others? And again, how, how, how does this happen? So let's start with who. What others does the scriptures teach us to love? Well, first, the household of faith. And uh, you might imagine there could be a number of ways we could describe uh, the church, believers, uh, brothers and sisters, Christians. I chose this because in Galatians 6, look at uh, the next chapter there in verse 10. Paul says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good, do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a, an emphasis placed on loving one another, right? That's what Jesus said, love one another. And so we must Look around this room. We must look at other believers and say, my primary love calling for other people in this world is you. But it doesn't stop there. Even what we just saw in uh, 610, right? Do good to everyone. Next, uh, we we are called to love unbelievers. We're, We're called to go out into the world be kind to everyone. The scripture says kind to all. Kindness is a verb as well, by the way. To, to serve others. To look at, at those who don't know the hope of Jesus Christ. And to give ourselves for their good. This is one of the... Um, greatest witnesses of our lives is when we show those who don't know Jesus what Jesus is like. And we show them that we genuinely care about them and their well-being. And we do things for them, for their good. Even those who might be difficult to love Even people we might not um, necessarily be inclined to spend time with. Dare I say, even people that we might find annoying. How about to take it one step further than that? What does the scripture say about loving our enemies? We're to love our enemies. 
Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Like it's really easy, isn't it, to love others when they're loving us? To, to feel a certain way in our hearts towards people that we know feel a certain way in their hearts about us. It's a lot easier to serve and to give ourselves for those who are serving us and giving themselves for us. Yet the high calling of the Christian is to love even our enemies. And in so doing, we are like God himself. We need to love the household of faith. We need to love unbelievers. We need to even love our enemies. And then next we need to ask, well, how? How do we do this? How does the gospel impact me so that I can have a gospel impact on others? How do I provide this profound love? And what should this look like? What what does profound love actually even look like? And I've listed here a number of ways, and I'm just going to run through them. Uh, for you. First, um, another reminder, depend on the Spirit. You and I, we can't do this. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can't do anything, right? So the first how, how do I love others, is depend on the Spirit. Help me, Lord, to go and to love. Second, uh, do not be content to allow in your heart the attitude of not wanting to love someone. Sometimes we can get to this place with particular people and I don't even even want to love that person and we need to recognize we, we can't be content to stay there. We need to pray and ask the Lord, change my heart, change my desires so that I want to love even that person who or whom I find difficult to love. Three, don't withhold love until others deserve it. Love doesn't demand changed behavior or, or retribution before it will act. That's not true biblical love. Also, make loving others a priority in your life. And this might sound kind of redundant, but listen, what do you do with other priorities in your life? Think about that. The priorities that are are part of your life, you you what, you spend time, you think about, you put in effort. This is what we need to do. We need to make loving others one of those priorities in our lives. We need to move toward others, not isolate, turn away from others. We need to look at others and we need to ask, what do they need? What can I give them? What can I do for them? Maybe it's an encouraging word. Maybe it's a note. Maybe it's spending time with them. Maybe it's providing resources for them. How how can you willingly forego your own interests for the interests 
of another. Next, beware of the awful enemy of pride. Just recognize that it is pride in our own hearts that prevents us from loving others. Pride focuses on who? Me, right? Pride demands that I get the attention. Pride protects my time. Pride prioritizes my comfort. Pride hates uh, inconvenience to my plans. Pride doesn't want things getting in the way of what is going to benefit me. And so we need to beware of the awful enemy of pride. Next, I would offer this. Meditate on love passages. You, you want to grow in loving others. You want to know how to do it. You need to be in the Word. You need to memorize. You need to meditate on the passages in God's Word, uh, examining our own hearts to ask the Lord, how can I grow? How can I mature? By, by the power of your Spirit, how can I practice what I'm seeing in your Word to love others? You know, turn to 1 Corinthians 13 again. It's not for husbands and wives um, in Scripture. It is for husbands and wives uh, primarily in practice, but it was written for the church. Read, what is love? What is love? And, and find out that love is patient and kind, and it doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. And, and ask the Lord, is this me? Or is this not me? Meditate on the love passages of Scripture. And then finally, firmly root your love for others in the love that God has shown you. This is most important. Firmly root your love for others in the love that God has shown you. Our love is to be modeled after his love for us. He gave himself for us. He spent himself for our good. He saw our need and he met that need. He considered our interests greater than his own interest. He didn't avoid the path of suffering and hardship out of love for us. He did it for us. He came for us. Again, I will borrow from the ESV study Bible. I just found a couple of things really helpful this week. There was a note here where um, where Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And the note says, just as implies a love that is even willing to lay down one's life for another. That is our calling. Jesus says, love one another the way that I've loved you. So he's telling each and every one of us, go and lay down your life for other people. And there's, there's a myriad of ways that that could look on the day-to-day, -day, right? Lay down our lives for others.
I appreciate what uh, Jonathan Edwards said in this regard. He said, such was the love of Christ to us that he did, as it were, spend himself for our sakes. His love did not rest in mere feeling, nor in light efforts and small sacrifices. But though we were enemies, maybe I'm just going to break there for a second because I think this is so helpful. You know, we read the passages about loving our enemies, and then we read the description of what those enemies are, and we think, that's so hard. How can we love people who've done that to us? And that's what we were to God. Right? We were his enemies. We wanted to be our own king. We wanted to, to strip him of his glory and take that glory for ourselves. We were his enemies. And yet, getting back to the, the quote on the screen, yet he so loved us that he had a heart to deny himself and undertake the greatest efforts and undergo the greatest sufferings for our sakes. He gave up his own ease and comfort and interest and honor and wealth and became poor and outcast and despised and had not where to lay his head and all for us. And this leads to our final point this afternoon. How do I cultivate love? One, prioritize a primary love for God. Two, provide a profound love for others. And then three, ponder the precious love of God. Ponder the precious love of God. The way that the Spirit of God produces love in us, both for Him and for others, is through pressing deeper into our hearts the infinite value of His love. Again, the Apostle John, he says in John 3.16, for God so what? Loved the world that He sent his one and only son. First uh, John 3.16. I like to call this the other John 3.16. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. What is a picture of the definition of love? Jesus laid down his life for us. And then what does he say? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. We're going to put this up on the screen. Again, such an important passage. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here it is. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to satisfy his wrath on our behalf for our good, right? Beloved, he says, verse 11, if God so loved us, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Ponder his precious love. This is where I go often to ponder the love, the the infinite value of God's love for us. I open my Bible to 1 John 4 and I read, in this 
the love of God was made manifest among us. I want to see a picture of your love, God. Here it is. You sent your son for me. I love um, the hymn, The Love of God. I don't know if you know it, but with great um, poetry, the writer says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of Jesus for us is incomprehensible. It surpasses knowledge. Nobody displays love like Jesus displays love. And this is true of this characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's true of all other characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. One last quote, Jerry Bridges, he said, in Jesus' incarnation and death, both the Father and the Son gave in response to our desperate plight Nothing but the Savior's incarnation and death would suffice to rescue us. The cost was infinite, but God the Father and God the Son loved us so much that they did not hesitate to pay the cost to meet our need. And this needs to be what we are constantly pondering. This is the impact the gospel has had on us and, and truly meditating upon these is how we will have gospel impact through our lives as we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And now what we're going to do together is we're going to ponder the precious love of God as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper.